Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, local and national actions strengthen the fight for voting rights. Over 300,000 students get a break on student loan debt, and we'll talk to the doctor about Pfizer's FDA-approved vaccine. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. This week, two big decisions expanding the right to vote. Here in North Carolina, judges voted in the civil case CSI v. Moore to extend the right to formerly convicted individuals. And in Washington, the House passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and it is now in the hands of the Senate. The case in North Carolina named the Community Success Initiative and others as plaintiffs and House Speaker Tim Moore, the State Board of Elections and others as defendants. What's next? I'd like to welcome journalist Mary C. Curtis of the Equal Time podcast, attorney Jessica Holmes, and Don Blagrove of Emancipate NC. Don is also a licensed attorney. I'm going to open up with you, Don. Welcome. Uh, to the program, all three of you. But, Don, can you share with us that before this legislation, or this decision, rather, what was North Carolina's law regarding the voting rights of formerly convicted individuals, and what has changed after that two-to-one decision? And if you wouldn't mind, uh, explain to us that, that expression, formerly convicted, in, you know, versus, say, incarcerated. I've seen a lot of headlines that say, former felons. Well, thank you first for having me. And I think the language around the way we talk about people who have been justice involved is incredibly important, and it's important that we uplift it here. So the reason that we want to avoid the word felon um, as the primary and only descriptor of an individual is because it is used in a way that is demeaning, it has a negative connotation, and it connects people to perpetually to the worst times in their life. It is imperative that as we talk about people um, and support restorative justice, that we allow folks to exist beyond the labels of criminality. So it is imperative that we use, that we stop using words like felons to, to describe an entire group of people and start using words that are more humanizing, Thank formerly you for that incarcerated. Distinction. Thank mm -hmm. you for that distinction. And so what's the difference now? What, what They had rights before, but now with this uh, judge's ruling, what's changed? So what has changed is this. Previously, people who were on probation or parole, that means people who are justice involved but are not physically confined inside of a state prison were not allowed to vote until they completed their probation or their parole. This ruling allows those people somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 56,000 people in North Carolina, 42% of those people are black, um, the right to vote as long as they are not physically incarcerated by the North Carolina Department of Correction. And Jessica, how quickly does this go into effect and how permanent is it? Um, the reality is that as of this ruling, everyone on felony probation, parole, or post-supervision release can register to vote now. Um, the courts had this judgment be effective immediately, such that individuals that 
fall under this criteria are able to vote in the 2021 municipal races. In terms of how permanent this is, that has yet to be seen. Uh, we certainly anticipate um, the General Assembly to file an appeal, an appeal that will not be filed by our Attorney General Josh Stein as he has been quote unquote fired or removed from the case because he would not file an immediate appeal after the ruling. And so the General Assembly has retained private counsel. So as of right now, um, these individuals are able to register to vote and anticipate that they'll be able to vote in the October municipal elections. However, we don't know what the final outcome will be should an appeal be successful. Jessica, was that the actual stated, you know, public stated reason why Josh Stein was fired? Um, actually, yes. Um, there was a letter that was sent to the Attorney General from the General Assembly on August 23rd. And the Attorney General didn't outright say, no, I'm not going to put forth an appeal. What he stated was, because the decision was an oral decision, it was not a written legal opinion, Therefore, he said his office on a technicality could not move forward with the appeal until there was a written opinion. And the General Assembly could not wait. They decided they wanted an immediate appeal to be filed, and therefore they decided not to wait on the Attorney General, and therefore they decided that they would themselves retain private counsel. Again, this whole scenario is very unusual. Well, thank you for that clarification. Mary, it is no uh, doubt, no question that for a long time there have been race-based uh, laws on the books. And even the defendants in this particular case said, hey, you know, we understand that there have been some racist policies, but um, in this case, uh, we're defending uh, the law that we have. Can you help us understand better where they were and, and what the politics are that are involved in this particular decision? Well, it's nothing but politics, in my opinion. It seems like every week in my roll call column or on the podcast, we are dealing with the issue of voting rights. And it's because we have seen that even post-Civil War, there have been ways that the majority have has looked to disenfranchise the African-American minority in this country, their voice. But they can say the law itself, well, it is race neutral, but we know it has disparate effects. And you have to look at this in the context of all of these laws throughout the country now uh, that are trying to say in the name of election integrity, of protecting the vote. But in reality, they're looking for ways to try to cut in and disenfranchise African-American voters. Particularly, you look at the census numbers and minorities are growing in this country. So we have seen that that is behind so many of these laws, particularly coming up with the midterm elections in 2022 and the presidential election in 2024, and particularly in the states of the former Confederacy, like North Carolina, you have seen these laws. So actually this one, which would uh, give these uh, folks vote the vote, is actually quite, uh, it's, it's really history-making for a state of the former Confederacy, which is why you can see that uh, the defendants are fighting it. That's so interesting, uh, your analysis. Don, I want to get your take on, you know, next steps in terms, you know, the, the battle for voting rights and then the whole conversation about uh, ballot integrity. They get a little uh, uh, murky. 
they kind of cross paths in, in strange ways. But in terms of making sure that people have access to the ballot and that they have the right um, to representation, whether they're incarcerated or used to be incarcerated or not, what's the next frontier for making sure that there is uh, equal access to the ballot? So the next frontier is that we need to, as a community um, and as a state, make sure that every person who has been formerly incarcerated or who has been convicted of a felony understands, has access to, and is able to fill out that voter registration form so that they can get on the rolls legally. We need to make sure that that is happening. We need to raise awareness around the state that this change has happened, this change has taken place, and that these people now have the right to vote. Uh, we also need to talk about uh, the insidious nature of these kinds of laws and the way we are seeing them promulgated across the state. Make no mistake, very often we hear uh, activists talk about systemic and institutional racism. These types of laws that appear race neutral but have the impact of creating a disparate uh, negative outcome for black and brown communities is exactly what systemic and institutional racism looks like, and we need to be able to identify it. Absolutely, and Mary, I want to bring you in because we mentioned the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and uh, the fact that it is now in the hands of the Senate. What are your thoughts on the importance of either doing away with the filibuster or the chances mm -hmm. of, of uh, doing away with the filibuster or the chances of survival for this piece of legislation with the Senate? Well, it's interesting, when I had majority with Fibern, James Fibern on, he said that unless these uh, uh, laws are passed, that actually, you know, we will probably have the Senate and the House change hands. And it's so interesting because in the past, when all of these laws for the Voting Rights Act to reauthorize them were brought up, they had broad support from both parties. And we just saw this latest uh, law named for John Lewis, their former colleague. No Republicans voted for it. And this is, you know, like I said, in the past, actually everyone did. So you can see how it has become political. As far as the filibuster is concerned, many activists and others are saying, listen, they're looking at President Joe Biden and saying, if it weren't for African-American and minority voters, you would not be in the presidency. Mm -hmm. And you have to have their back, no matter what it takes. The filibuster isn't a law. It's just a tradition and a rule. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, if you have to get rid of it to get these laws out there so the people who voted for you will see that you are working for them to give them the vote and to make sure their vote is protected. You know, why are you there? So you will see a lot of, of actually fighting on this. And this year's March on Washington, uh, 58th anniversary, and I had MLK third on, he will be marching. This one is for voting rights. And you'll have many people converge, not just in Washington, but all over the country, because they feel that this is the important issue. Um, and as far as folks who have been convicted, supposedly you want them to enter society as free citizens and feel that they are a part of it. And the vote is a really important way for them to feel like Americans. Mary, thank you for making the connection.
Student loan debt for more than 300,000 disabled borrowers has been canceled to the tune of $5.8 billion. The Biden administration made the announcement on August 19th, and it will certainly be a great relief to those students. Students with disabilities already had access to this debt forgiveness through the Total and Permanent Disability Discharge Program. So how does the administration's move improve upon this? Jessica, I want to open with you. Does this move make good on Biden's uh, goal of targeted student loan forgiveness? Um, I'll say yes, but that doesn't answer the complete question. As someone who is a first-generation college student and still has the college and law school debt to show for it, um, I have been following this issue very closely. Um, so yes, um, this new change basically remove, removes a bureaucracy. It takes away some of the paperwork. Um, you're absolutely correct in that folks were eligible for this debt forgiveness. However, now these individuals are able to automatically receive these benefits without having to apply or without having to provide additional paperwork. So that's the biggest change, that these individuals who were before eligible um, don't have to go through that additional red tape, and they automatically, upon a designation of total and having a total and permanent disability, they are able to go ahead and receive this forgiveness. And Mary, do you think that this helps uh, Biden to make good on that promise of the targeted student loan forgiveness and more specifically about reducing the racial wealth gap? Yeah, well, folks are saying that unless you go after the student debt, uh, that you will not be able to reduce that racial wealth gap. He's done it in other areas. But this is so important because you are talking about so many first-generation college students and you're talking about folks who've suffered from discrimination on every level. So you don't have that generational wealth of the parent who can just write the check. Um, and also you have discrimination in the housing market and in the employment market that these folks are facing. So yes, you have to go after student debt in order to reduce that racial wealth gap. Um, and this is a start because there's a he's starting on this but student, is, student loan uh, debt is huge. So this is just getting a little bit of it for now. Yes, black college students have an average of $52,000 in student loan debt and owe an average of $25,000 more than their white counterparts, according to national, uh, according to data from the National Center for Education Statistics. And uh, Don, do you think that these recent actions uh, actually put a dent in the student loan burden for black students? No. <laughs> and I also think that um, we need for Biden and the, uh, the federal government to go much, much further. We are in the midst of an economic uh, depression because of COVID, the likes of which this country has not seen in over 30 years. Or, or since the 30s. If we want and to are, and are serious about really stimulating the economy, really closing that wealth gap, um, we need to make sure that black and brown folks are given full forgiveness of federal student loans. And again, this is a conversation that should be wrapped up in 
a conversation around reparations. And without reparations, we do not get to racial—we do not get to economic equity, we do not get to fairness in this country, and we do not get to a place where all Americans are able to thrive equally. We have got to have the conversation of reparations, and forgiveness of student loans for black and brown students is a huge portion of that reparations conversation. Do you feel like the reparations conversation is happening already? I'm hearing a lot more about it. I don't know if it's just a matter of, well, sure, go ahead and talk about it. It's fine with us. But, you know, it's, it's, isn't it time for the actions at this point? I agree that it's absolutely times for the actions, but I do not want to poo-poo the fact that the conversation of reparations has made its way into the mainstream uh, thoughts of gotcha. America. It yeah. is important, and it is an important step towards creating, uh, creating the conditions and creating the political will for that wealth gap that was created by very racist American policies to be... Uh, corrected and rectified. And some would say, some would say that, listen, things aren't fair. They're not necessarily going to be equitable. We can't, you know, give, give, give 10 for this one and 20 for this because of the calculus of, of discrimination. Um, and that, you know, let, let's, let's kind of start from a clean slate. There's opportunity and access out there. So, you know, Biden has has said, yeah, I agree that student loan debt is a burden. What what's his promise though? What can what can the black community hold him accountable to with regard to writing off debt for for all students versus targeted group of students? I think that first I want to address this idea that it is unattainable or unachievable to to right the wrong of American history towards the black community. We do it in other—we have seen this country make those kinds of juxtapositions, make those kinds of reparations in all other sorts of historical situations where there was recognized inequity. We can do this. This is a possibility. This is something that is real and that should happen and is long overdue. I want to hear from—I'm sorry, but, but I, I do want to give a few seconds to Jessica and Mary to respond as well. Jessica? Um, I'm in agreement uh, with Attorney Blagrove, especially as to this is simply a drop in the bucket. This targeted student loan debt forgiveness is just a drop in the bucket. We still have a very long way to go in terms of addressing equity. It was mentioned earlier, the reality that black students tend to have to loan more. When we graduate, we are in more debt. Um, this affects things like our credit score, our ability to then go and purchase a home. And then to go get a job, because if you have a poor credit score, you can't go get a job. That's right. Absolutely. So, so it, okay. it, it cuts across. Mary? Yeah, I just want to say, this is a conversation that we need to have, because there is systemic racism. And I want to, though, say that the reality is it's going to be a tough one, because yeah. we have seen, whether it is the government trying to make good on all the black farmers in debt because of racism in the past or in housing policies because of uh, restricted covenants and others that kept blacks from uh, getting that wealth. You have seen pushback in every area from mm -hmm. folks who wanna say, as you said earlier, Deborah, everything is fine now. So folks have to have the political will and the activism behind it to say, no, this isn't right and our leaders are owe us this as Americans. And In order to be fair today, you have to deal with the systemic racism that has made things from the student loan debt to farmers, to housing, to employment, 
that have created this gap. And because it impacts all of America, all Americans have to get involved. Mary C. Curtis, Jessica Holmes, Don Blagrove, thank you so much for your insights. More progress on battling coronavirus. The FDA has officially approved the Pfizer vaccine for adults 18 and over, and Moderna has submitted its filing. So we could soon have two FDA-approved COVID-19 vaccines. And I want to welcome back family medicine practitioner, Dr. Nicole Swiner. Doc Swiner, thanks for joining us. Now, with this FDA approval, what do you think that means in terms of providing some relief to those who have been vaccine hesitant? I'm excited. And now, of course, the door is open for even more conversation for those who were kind of waiting for this to happen. You know, we, we knew we had the safe option when the FDA did it uh, as an emergency, but it, it gave a lot of people some pause. You know, was it too quickly? You know, did, did, it, did they skip steps? But now that the FDA has given its official stamp of approval, I hope that more people will be open to going ahead and getting vaccinated. Let's talk a little bit about boosters. So it's now out that, look, eight months from the time that you got that second vaccination shot, you need to be going ahead and getting a booster. How safe is this? And does it matter which booster you get? If you started with Pfizer, can you go get a Moderna? If you started with J&J, &J, can you go, you know, how does that work? Good question. So we, you know, at our clinic at Durham Family Medicine, we're excitedly getting the schedule together. We have Moderna. We have Moderna in particular. And people have already been calling and trying to figure out, you know, when should they get their, themselves on the schedule eight months from their second dose of either Moderna or Pfizer. Um, so you also asked a good question about, you know, can you mix and match? Yeah. Um, can I hop over to yeah. the FDA-approved one? We don't know. We don't know. We we don't have an official recommendation yet from the Johnson & Johnson side of things, so we're still waiting on that. It seems as if the, the recommendation is not to mix the mRNAs. So if you got Pfizer, it seems as if it's not a good idea to switch over to Moderna. I think, we're you know, the jury is still out on that, but for now we're trying to stick with what you got originally. Um, and the boosters are as safe as they as the initial doses are, so there's no change in um, rate of efficacy for the, the first uh, variant of coronavirus and no change in the amounts of side effects. And it's just one dose. You don't have to get two doses this time. It's just one as a booster. It seems as though people are really concerned about the fact that there needs to be a booster shot so soon after the initial inoculation. Does this have anything to do with the Delta variant's potency or the a number of people who've been vaccinated? Correct. So just like the flu shot, you know, viruses mutate, they multiply, they change, they become new. So with the flu shot, every year there's, you know, potentially a new variant that we're fighting against. So we change the type of flu virus that we're attacking. The same is probably going to be true forever with uh, the coronavirus. It's going to change. It's going to learn what we're doing. It's going to adapt. It's going to, um, you know, virus is very smart. So I was not surprised. I actually thought it was going to be sooner recommend, recommended that we, we needed the booster. I thought it was going to be at six months, really, to be honest with you, because we were thinking in between six to 12. So eight months is kind of right in the middle. Um, I'm not surprised, and I'm, I won't be surprised if we will have to continue doing annual updates just to make sure that we're staying on top of, you know, the technology that these viruses will adapt to. Yes. Well, the Delta variant has really changed some things. I mean, we have seen the popular memes, my fall plans, the That's Delta right. variant. <laughs> and at this point, it's causing quite the divide in families and in <clears throat> friendships. Some are even afraid to tell their loved ones that they got a shot. 
or didn't get a shot. So, you know, people don't want to offend anybody, but safety is priority number one. So can you talk about um, ways to be, um, ha have COVID etiquette? You know, how do you talk to family members or even friends who you know are socializing without masks, traveling freely, not vaxxed, uh, but they want to come to the cookout? Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, you tell me. I don't know. I'm going to have to have this conversation, too. Uh, I literally this week just started thinking about the holidays, you know, where are we going to go, who are we going to be with. Um, you know, you need to be very selective, and you, you will have to have those uncomfortable conversations with uh, households that may have thought differently or do things differently protocol-wise or maybe have not gotten vaccinated and your household has been. So in, you know, in our case, you know, the two adults in the house are vaccinated, but our two kids are under 12, so as of right now, are not vaccinated. Very concerned for their health and their safety. Um, and we do have some family, me family members that have not decided to get the vaccination yet. So that's going to be a very awkward but necessary conversation about Thanksgiving, about Christmas. You know, are, are you guys going to get vaccinated? Do you plan to be? If not... You know, as a medical provider in the family, can I answer a question for you? If you're not mm. going to be vaccinated, will you get tested? Will you quarantine prior to? You really have to have those conversations. I, I would not, you know, take on gatherings willy-nilly. I would really be choosy and selective about where you go and who you're around. And and who's in greatest jeopardy, if anyone, when when you've got an unvaccinated crew there and a vaccinated crew there, I think that the people who are who have the vaccines are probably under the impression that they're in danger or that things aren't safe mm -hmm. if there are folks around who haven't been vaxxed. But but who's really in danger here? I mean, to be honest with you, everyone, everyone, because as as you know, these variants have uh, learned a little bit about this vaccine, the vaccines that we have out. And so the vaccinations, to be honest, are slightly less effective for these new variants. And so even if I, as a vaccinated person, come into contact with an unvaccinated person or with someone who has uh, an infection from the Delta variant, I am still at risk for getting infected and then bringing it home to my unvaccinated children. So everyone, everyone has is got at to risk. be cautious and exercise those safety protocols. Dr. Nicole Sliner, thank you so much for your time thank and your you. advice. I want to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. As we round out a week marked by tragedy with the explosion in Afghanistan that killed and injured U.S. servicemen and Afghan civilians, we want to recognize their bravery and express our sincere condolences. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thanks for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.